I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an American scientist, entrepreneur and a founding father of the video game industry. Born in 1943, he grew up in Utah in a Mormon family before leaving to study engineering and business at Utah State University. While a student, he played Space War, one of the earliest digital games designed for the mainframe PDP-1 computer. After graduating, he joined an electronics company and there met Ted Dabney, with whom he founded a startup company with the aim of creating a commercial version of Space War for the arcades. In 1972, the pair changed the company's name to Atari, a term taken from my guest's favourite board game, Go!, Together with another engineer, Al Alcorn, the trio produced Pong, and in 1976, the Atari 2600 console, which together birthed the modern games industry. Throughout the 70s, my guest hired dozens of young engineers, including one Steve Jobs, who later co-founded Apple. Since then, my guest has founded more than 20 companies, received the BAFTA Fellowship, and has been named one of Newsweek's 50 Men, who changed America. Welcome, Nolan Bushnell. 
That sounds more impressive than it actually is. <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs> well, I'd like you to take me back to the moment when you're a student and you see Space Wall for the first time. I, I think it's, it's exceedingly difficult for people to understand the scale of these university mainframe computers in those very early days. Can you, can you describe for, to us where, where you were when you first saw the game and your, your reaction to it? I was an engineering student at the University of Utah. Uh, I transferred from Utah State down to the University of Utah. And uh, we didn't have a PDP-1. And so they de- I, evidently they deported it over to a PDP-11 because we had two or three PDP-11s there. And a couple of them had video screens attached. These were vector graphics. These were, uh, you know, old radar, repurposed radar displays. Very bright lights, aren't they? Those uh, vector graphics. Are yeah. Really, sort of really, yeah, beautiful. And and the uh, and so I had a fairy brother who said, hey, meet me at the computer lab at, uh, at 2 o'clock and we'll play games. And I said, what? You know, I had no idea what he was talking about. But I went there 2 o'clock in the morning and we played... We played Space War until the sun came up. Really? Uh, and that was my my baptism by fire, if you would. My life has been a series of happy accidents in which one thing led to another with no plan at all, just kind of accidentally falling in place. For example, I got a job at, at the local amusement park for all the wrong reasons. I I got it to keep me busy nights so I wouldn't spend money so I'd save for school because my day job was I owned, started a company called Campus Company, which was an advertising blotter kind of thing. Uh. And I was making a lot of money. I was driving a 190 SL Mercedes and nice. pretty much through college. So, you know, I was, I was living large. But it turned out that I enjoyed the amusement park experience and, uh, they ended up making me manager a couple of years later, and and I felt that was sort of my MBA in a lot of ways, uh, managing a department that was doing well over three or four million dollars a year there in the summer. So it's equivalent to managing a twelve million dollar business today in the day when twelve million was a lot of money. Sure, yeah, right. <laughs> you know? And uh, I had a couple of arcades that reported to me. So I knew the economics of the coin-operated game business. I knew how much they cost. I knew how much, uh, you know, how much, how reliable they needed to be uh, and how much coin they they needed to, to generate. So uh, that was kind of happy accident one. Happy accident two was going to the University of Utah. Dr. Evans was there and he, his whole center of gravity was connecting video screens to big computers. 1966, the time frame I'm talking about, there were three places in the world where a video screen was connected to a computer. MIT, Stanford, University of Utah. You know, so happy accident three. Then happy accident four was I went to work for Ampex that was doing a lot of things in video because they had these video recorders. And so I really fine-tuned my skill, digital skills, 
on video screens. Mm -hmm. Those three happy accidents led to the video game. I mean, th this might be difficult to, to remember, but, you know, you, you see Space War for the first time, Fern, you spend the whole night playing it with your friend. You know, was it really an immediate thought you had of like, oh, I could see this working in the amusement arcades where I, where I, where I spend time? Or did it take a little bit more time for those all those happy accidents you described to come together in your head? No, it, I immediately thought, and here's, here's the process I went through. I said, there's no question in my mind that if I could add a coin slot on this monitor, it would make a lot of money <laughs> in my opinion. Wow. But then I do a little bit of math and say 25 cents for three minutes and a million-dollar computer. The math doesn't work. And also, I guess, the size of the thing, right? I mean, this is a computer that's the size of a room. Refrigerated, raised floor with all kinds of wiring and 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 folderol. <laughs> yeah. This was in the days when when computers were like there's all they were almost in a shrine. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's not gonna work down at the local pier arcade, is it? You needed a little bit of technological advancement to happen over the next few years, didn't you, before you could put it in a you know, a box that would be small enough to have in an amusements. Precisely. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean, we are going to talk about uh, all of this in a bit more detail, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, I was interested as well just in the role that money has played in in your in your life, in your career, in all of the businesses and ventures you've done, because you you made you've made a lot of money in your life. You sold Atari for twenty eight billion, I think, four years after founding it, and then later the tech used in sat navs for fifty million. Uh, but you've also, you know, lost lots of money as well because you're constantly coming up with new ideas and new businesses and ventures and things that didn't work out and things that did work out. You know, do, what what role does money or has it played as a motivating force for you? Or is it always something else that you're chasing after? It's actually quite a hard question. I've always said that there's there's two kinds of money. There's money that you buy a house with and, and, you know, spend on your kids and determines whether you're buying a Mercedes or a Volkswagen. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's a whole class of money, which I call poker playing money. And then the more money you have that's poker playing money, you just play in bigger games. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that if you're a creative sort, which I guess, I guess I qualify it turns out that, that the, I'd say that if I, I think there are a lot of people creative. What my particular thing is that once I get an idea, I kind of have to work on it. You know, I feel like I'm a doer, not a thinker or not a dreamer. <laughs> I mean, I get the dreams, I get the ideas, but I then I have to do it. Sometimes the the gap between me doing it and not doing it is raising money, which I hate to do, incidentally. <laughs> and so having a little bit of money, like I'm not sure that Chuck E. Cheese would have ever launched if I didn't have enough money. Because, you know, if you go to go to venture capital and you say, I'm, I want to build a pizza parlor that's 10 times bigger than any you've ever seen and, <laughs> and it has a big arcade attached to it and, oh, wait. They're talking robotic animals. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So that was all your own money then from the Atari sale that you, you invested in Chuck E. Cheese, was it? Right. Yeah, right. Okay. I actually made more money on Chuck E. Cheese than I did on Atari. Oh, you did? I didn't know that. <laughs> and then, then this is all the way on, on robots. On robots. Well, we'll come back to all of that. But for now, let's turn to the premise of the podcast. So I've asked you to pick the five video games you'd like to put on your perfect video game console. I think you are one of the first guests I've had who have actually made and designed and released consoles before. So this should be interesting. Um, yeah, but perhaps you could just tell me about your first choice. Um, the game is from 1976. What is it and why do you love it? I liked Breakout because it was very simple. And, uh, and you know, it was actually um, the engineering was done by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. We down deep inside of the green man, there's a little boy, an Atari fam, and without any doubt, the boy will come out when he plays a game from Atari. Have you played Atari today? Give a man an Atari game and he'll turn into a little boy. But don't worry, he'll be grown up enough to share it. Have you played Atari today? Steve has always had a special place in my heart. And so I think there's a little bit of history nostalgia that goes along with that. It was also a game that was quite instrumental in a lot of things. Like uh, Pong didn't do well in Japan because it wasn't typical for kids to have other kids come home. You know, it's, it's not a kids have kids over kind of culture. <clears throat> and so the two-player game didn't work, but Breakout did. And it was, it, it, it sort of did the stop back in Japan, what Pong did in the U.S. in terms of starting the, the home game revolution. <clears throat> yeah. And so, so, I mean, everyone knows what Breakout is, but just in case any listeners don't, you control a paddle at the bottom of the screen and a ball bounces up and sort of knocks the bricks out of a brick wall, doesn't it, until you've eliminated everyone. But if you miss the ball, then you lose a life. That's it in a nutshell, right? Right. Yeah. And when there's a magic thing that if you can get the ball up behind the brick stack, it knocks out a whole bunch. Yeah, it sort of dings off the ceiling, doesn't it? Back and, and it's forth. It's very rewarding, and and uh, I've often felt that 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 little feature of where you break through and then get it that that that, that was that was kind of the special win. Mm. And you you mentioned there Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, who later found go on to found Apple, were worked on that arcade game for you at Atari. Um, you know, who, how were the responsibilities divided up between them? Who, who came up with the game idea? And I, I'm guessing Steve Wozniak did all the coding, but, um, you know, what do you remember about the process of making the game? I designed the game myself, but I needed uh, some engineers to work on it because I just didn't have time to, I could have done it myself, but I just didn't have the time. I, I sort of, you know, I loved being an engineer. But I also love being CEO. Unfortunately, once you're a CEO, you just didn't have time to do the other stuff. You, you, and and that was sad in a way for me. I mean, I'm here in my lab. I still like to do engineering stuff. Yeah, I can see you got all sorts of toys around you and soldering irons and everything. Exactly, you know. And uh, and and so I put Steve on the night shift 
primarily because I knew that he and Waz would come over. And uh, Steve was a pretty good marketeer and technician, but he was not a good engineer. Wozniak was a savant. <laughs> and and I knew that. And uh, But he didn't work for you, did he? He worked for Hewlett Packard at the time, is that right? Precisely. Yeah. But I knew I'd I knew if I put jobs on the night shift that I'd get two Steves for the price of one. <laughs> Very catty. <laughs> right. Let's, um, uh, Nolan, let's go right back in time then. So you, you grew up in Utah, as I mentioned in the introduction. What was your, what other experiences that you remember as a young child? Oh, I, uh, I was a ham radio operator early on. If you were a geek nerd, in the 50s, ham radio was your really nerdiest experience. I then started a business of TV repair. How old were you at that time? 10, 11. And, wow. And, uh, and the, the problem I had was when you're a ham radio operator, you always want better receivers and better transmitters, and they were expensive. And, you know, if you divide by allowance and lawnmower money into, uh, you know, mowing lawn money, I could have gotten my transmitters when I was 40. (laughs) That wasn't an acceptable solution. So I started this TV repair business and I made a lot of money. How much were you charging? 50 cents a house call. But I could mark the tubes up almost 200%. So I was buying vacuum tubes for 50 cents to a dollar and charging three to five dollars for it right okay so you quickly got enough income coming in that you could you could work on the radios which is what you really wanted to do precisely and you once told me that you were you were quite a handful as a child um how well did your parents handle you and all of your energy i think they were a little bit baffled by the stuff i did like you know not many parents would allow their son to put a red and white stripe pole on top of their house to hold up an antenna let alone deal with the neighbors when when I would transmit, I'd actually block out channel two on television. And I could say, it's not my fault. I'm, I'm transmitting on the prescribed frequency. Yeah. People who, are, who I'm interfering with, their receivers have too, too broad a, a, a thing. They're, they're, they're defective receivers. Well, that... <laughs> That doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but they they bought it. So forgive my ignorance, when you say you're transmitting, what, what were you transmitting through this antennae? Well, I was talking to other people. You know, I I probably talked to in those days it was there was a thing called are you was W A S worked all states. And so what you try to do is make contact with somebody in every state in the union. And then you trade these things called QSL cards, which was kind of verification that you'd made contact. Right. Okay. So it was like a one-to-one broadcast. It's not like you were broadcasting like a radio program. You were just trying to right. hook into someone. All right. I see. And then, you know, what were you? You know, you're this 11-year-old kid. What kind of people were you talking to then? Was it other kids? Well, they were all adults, but this, but they didn't need to know that I was an 11-year-old kid. Right. You put on a deep voice. Exactly. <laughs> In fact, I, I think I learned how to be a poser through that, which which is, you know, proper posing has carried me in good stead on many, many an effort. 
So what was, your, what was the story that you were saying? People would say, oh, hello, I'm, you know, so-and-so from Alaska. And what would you say? Hi, I'm Nolan Bushnell from, from Utah. And Utah was actually a pretty good, you know, people wanted to get Utah. It was not one of the, like, California contacts were a dime a dozen. Sure. <laughs> but <laughs> not many people broadcasting from Utah. Exactly. And so, I, and I, and what you, your things say, I'm using a Hammerland receiver and a Viking transmitter. Uh, I'm broadcasting on 200 watts. And, you know, yeah, like you say, it's unusual, I suppose, for parents to let their kid, you know, put up a pole and then start broadcasting and talking to strangers all around the country. Why do you think they allowed you to do that? I think they felt that it was my hobby and they should be supportive and, uh, you know, other than the fact that in my transmitter, I had 1,200 volts of, of accelerating power, very easily enough to fry you. <laughs> but I was careful. <laughs> right. Incredible. And then, so, I mean, you know, you're, you start making money from repairing these TVs and you're also having a great time on the on the radio. So, you know, I suppose... Is it quite soon that you're thinking, I want to do this for, for my life, you know, that I want to be involved in ele- electronics and engineering and all of this kind of world? I, I, yeah. I actually decided I wanted to be an electrical engineer when I was in the third grade. Miss um, Cook actually started the whole craziness. She assigned me the, the magic science box, and she have one kid who would go and do the experiments and then demonstrate it to the rest of the class. And she assigned me the one on electricity. And so I got to play with the dry cells and the wire and the lights and that sort of thing. And I was smitten. And I went home from school that night, set up a card table in the corner of my bedroom, got every flashlight, battery, piece of wire in the place and started to tinker and that never stopped. Amazing. So we've got Mrs. Cook to thank for Atari and all of this then. Absolutely. Um, And then just lastly, you know, many people, Utah is obviously very um, associated with the Mormon faith and lots of people who live there uh, prescribe to that. But you, I know that you moved away from that when you became a student. Yeah. How difficult was that for your family? Did it, did it cause any division or tension or were they, were they okay with it? Well, I, I would say my mom was actually pretty pragmatic. You know, when I said that I'd left the church, she said, well, you know, it's not for everybody. And so it, it, it really didn't affect our outcome that much. Um, I think she I think she really wanted me to uh, just have a good life. <laughs> when she visited me in California and we were having wine with dinner, I could tell she was a little off-put by that. <laughs> And your dad was he? How did he cope? My dad died when I was fifteen. I didn't know that. So, uh, in fact, one of my big regrets is that uh, he was never a witness to my success. And I think he would have loved it. I'm sure. I'm sure. Right, Nolan. Let's come to your your second game then. So this is from 1979. Tell me, what what is the game? Uh, so that would be asteroids. Ah! 
Dear Atari Anonymous, ever since my husband Luno returned from Earth with asteroids to new Atari home video games, he and the rest of the family do nothing but play asteroids. Luno says asteroids is good practice for his interplanetary life. Tell me, dear Atari Anonymous, with everybody hooked on asteroids, what on Earth is a poor Martian mother to do? New Atari Asteroids, now available for your home. There's actually a, a theme. In asteroids, the objective is to clean up space, get rid of all the asteroids, break out, get rid of all the bricks. There's kind of a thread here. I I, I was thinking about that the other day. And uh, the bricks were stationary. The asteroids are two-dimensionally motivating. I've actually got a version of uh, asteroids that I've been playing with. There's actually 3D that you play in three space with a VR headset. Oh, nice. <laughs> Lovely stuff. And and Asteroids was played on a, one of these vector screens, wasn't it? It was a bit, uh, it was different to, it wasn't on a cathode ray tube, was it? So, yeah, it's got this very bright graphics and really, really striking, isn't it? Even today, sort of all these years later. Is that a game that you you came up with yourself, and and also why did you decide to go down this this particular route with the graphical representation? Well, I felt that vector graphics had some cleanliness to it that was important. When we got big enough that we could actually design our own monitors, and our we actually designed that vector graphic display, and it was a it was a little bit of a technical sort of force because doing something and doing something cheaply or a different thing. (laughs) (laughs) And then when you, you know, vector graphics didn't have a shadow mask. And so how do you get color? And the answer was that you had this, this phosphor that was sensitive to how hard you were hitting it electronically. So if you hit it with 10,000 volts of acceleration, it was green. And if it was 12,000 volts, it was yellow. And if, we, if it was 15,000 volts, it was red. Now, what that meant was that we had to shift high voltage at video. We, we had to switch high voltage at video rates. It had never been done before. To give the different color effects, you mean? Yeah. Wow. Well, Anyway, it's a little inside baseball. Like. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. We did. I mean, how long did it take to to make that all work? It seems like maybe you blew some things up while attempting to do that. Was it was it a long process? I think the engineers were able to knock it out in about a year, mm-hmm. maybe six months. Wow, wow. Incredible, incredible stuff. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, yeah, we talked, we talked at the beginning, you go off to university and you see Space War and the PDP-1 and you're working at the amusement arcades and, you know, also being entrepreneurial in all these different ways um, that then, you know, eventually lead to the creation of, of the games business. But, but before that, you leave university and you want to work at Disney. Uh, where, did, where did that come from? And, and, you know, did you get an interview? Did you get as far as that? Well, it was really funny. Um, when I was... At the amusement park, I had the highest grossing games centers per capita in the nation. Really? And I had a reputation. And when I graduated, I had offers for more money staying in the amusement park world than I did as an associate engineer. Just explain, how were you, how were you so making so much money more than anyone else? Uh, I just... I looked at all the games we had and figured out how I could optimize them. And so, for example, there, there was a game called Over and Under. I changed the rules a little bit. And so, instead of rolling six balls, you only had to roll four. That increased the speed because when you're dealing with midway games, it's like feast or famine. Okay. The, when, when, the, when the people are there, you're going as fast as you can. And so you got a great deal of traction just by being able to speed right. things up. These are not pinball games, and obviously they're not arcade games because they're not around yet. These are, elect, um, these are mechanical games that use little balls and gullies and things like that. Balls and balls and knocking down milk bottles and, you know, right. Right. shooting baskets and ski ball and, yep. and that sort of thing. But, you know, for example, um, there was a game called Guess Your Weight. Um, you know, guess your age, weight, occupation, what have you. Well, I found out that if you put a very stunningly attractive woman as the as the guesser, it made more money because people would want to. They they would think that the the girl wasn't going to be as good at it. Uh-huh. And then there were the young, handsome guys who thought, oh. This would be a chance for me to talk to this stunning young woman. So, what was the game? The, the punter had to guess the weight of the of the lady that you'd hired. Is that right? No, no. The lady that you hired did have to guess the age and weight. Okay, I see. Right, that makes more sense. But then, that became so successful that I found out that I could put three or four or five 
girls in the same booth just talking to somebody different. <laughs> so I took that one uh, one game and went from doing $200 in a night to over 1000 in a night. Right. Because young men are coming in and they, they're lonely and they want to chat to a pretty girl, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, so anyway, I mean, you know, when I say I had the highest per cap and, and the amusement park business at that time was pretty small town and there was a lot of communication between that and everybody knew my numbers. But I thought to myself, okay, other than Disney, I, I really think that I should take a shot at being an engineer. I can come back and pick up my reputation on the amusement park side if I ever need to. Right. But literally, I took half the salary uh, to be an engineer than what they were offering me to go out to Great America. So you mean it was like half the salary for this job at Ampex that you, that you took instead of all the other deals that you had coming in? Right, okay. Uh, and w when you arrive there, the, this is when you bump into the person who becomes your partner, Ted Dabney. Um, how long did it take for you to meet him and what initially drew you two together? We were assigned to the same office. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when you're in the same office, you talk and uh, we started to play Go together. And, and that was fun. And Ted had really good analog skills and my skills were primarily digital. And so we made, you know, it was like two halves of the, of the same coin. Hey. You know, it solved almost anything. Hey. It was an analog problem, power supplies, sound circuits, what have you. That was Ted. It was digital, computer, shift registers, flip-flops. Mm. That was me. So you, I mean, it's it's like the dream partnership, isn't it? Like you say, it, how long did it take you to start having those conversations about, you know, creating computer space, which would be the commercial version of Space War. You know, was that straight away you were thinking that, or did it take a little while? It took over a year. Right. And how, how concerned were you that maybe other people in the in America might have had the same idea as you? Or did you think this is just an, you know, un, un, untouched ground for us to, to exploit or make use of? I kind of didn't think about that, actually. I was more... I had bigger questions as, can it be done? Because the chips didn't want to go very fast, and video likes to consume at 3.58 megahertz. Most of the chips ran out of gas at 1 megahertz. So things like that. I mean, a blistering fast computer in those days had a clock speed of 500 kilohertz, half a megahertz. You know, so it was... Um, it was really hard. <laughs> we, we had to hike through snow, and it was uphill both to school and back home. <laughs> Amazing. Well, well, well worth the journey, I would say. Um, so it, it's around this time that you, you see a demonstration of a, of a game called Tennis for Two, which then you and Ted and uh, Alan, your, your first employee, then later adapt into the what I would say was a much more commercially savvy name in Pong. Um, how long did it take you to come up with the, the name for Pong? You know, you obviously have a talent for, for naming games, and uh, but this was really a, a real knockout, I think, piece of branding. You, you're, you're actually skipping over a, a phase. Did uh, computer space and mm. license the to Nutty. <laughs> it was after that that 
that the Odyssey came along. And I worked with Nutty, and Ted came over and worked with Nutty for, for about a year, <laughs> year and a half. And um, in some ways, this is Happy Accident 5. Nutty was massively incompetent. <laughs> you know, they were just, they were just not clever people. And, and so I knew I couldn't attach my star to them. Uh, and so I quit and just go off on my own. And our idea was we were going to be a design house for the other companies. Right. Cause we had no money and no factory and, and all that other stuff. But, um, and that's when Odyssey came along and we thought, and, and Al needed a project to kind of train because we were going to do a, a driving game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I wanted to have something that was simple and I defined the, the ping pong game and it was very fun. Mm-hmm. Then it got funner and funner and we made modifications to it. <laughs> and when we put it on location, it's the old story that it quit working just the coin box filled up which was an easy problem to solve. Yes. Yeah, so many people were pumping quarters in that they could no longer register a credit, could they? That's right. And they, yeah, like I say, when the name uh, Pong, obviously from Ping Pong, but you, you got rid of the ping. So yeah, when, when, did you, when did you come up with the title for the, for the game? Really immediately upon uh, deciding to, to, to market it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it, 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 Pong has, I think, one of the greatest instructions ever devised for a game, you know, video game or board game, avoid missing ball for high score, just sort of enviably succinct. Where where did that originate? Well, I don't know. I think I just wrote it out on on a piece of paper and handing the guys because you had to have instructions. You know, mm-hmm. One of the fun stories is uh, when we got a, uh, a British distributor, he says, you can't call it Pong here. And I said, well, why? He says, well, Pong is a euphemism for a bad smell. <laughs> I said, really? He says, yeah. You go, ooh, there's a bit of a Pong in here. <laughs> he says, you know what you want? If you had a bar, would you want to have have a machine over there that says fart? <laughs> uh I think uh, I'm glad that you didn't listen to that guy. I mean, okay, he makes a good point, but uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I guess when you when you come out with a thing, people immediately forget the previous associations, right? Well, actually, we we changed. Uh, we we uh, we marketed in the UK as under ping. Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. No. Let's come to your your third game then. So this one is from 1980. Tell us about the game. Right. This- Missile Command was a game that I really liked. It was first use of the trackball in a video game. And somehow that changed things a lot. I'm going out to inspect the troops. Yes, sir. Regular change today, General? This is Atari Missile Command. Millions of people are mad for it in thousands of game centers across the country. Interplanetary war is hurt. Attention all generals. Now you can get your own Atari Missile Command video game and practice saving the world in the privacy of your home. Missile Command. Only from Atari. And then the whole idea of Mervyn warheads and being under attack 
it was kind of a, you know, this was an era where people were, where kids were being taught to hide under their desk, you know, in case of a nuclear attack. Yeah, a lot of anxiety, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in the game, we should just quickly describe it. So in the game, you, you launch sort of bombs to detonate ICBMs before they land on the Californian coast um, and save cities. So it's quite dark material, really. Massively dark. <laughs> and uh, and then when you lose, it says game over, mm. you know, in a, in a very, very uh, dystopian way. Yeah, got a final way. Yeah. And who was the designer on that? I can't remember his name now, but he used to have nightmares, I think, about the game. And I remember him, him saying at one point, is that right? Ed Rockford, yeah. Yeah. Do, did you have any qualms about uh, about publishing a, a game with uh, such serious subject matter? Well, you know, early on, Atari had this prohibition against violence against people. Yeah. You can blow up a tank, you can blow up a rocket ship. Couldn't shoot at a image with arms and legs. In today's, you know, first-person shooters, it sounds really quaint. <laughs> Where was that coming from? Why did you make that decision? Early on... Video games were, 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 were considered, one, a waste of time, two, bad for you, three, it's new and therefore it can't be good. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like uh, the reputation of guys who've hung out of the pool hall. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just didn't want to, you know, we didn't need to have games where you show, shot at a person. Mm-hmm. You know? So I just said, Let's just not do that, you know, because it's just one more thing that the people who were trying to outlaws, you know, there were countries that outlawed video games in the the 70s. So it was a a decision that you made just to try and help improve the, or or at least not have one more thing stacked against games, right? But but then Missile Command has this you know, quite uh, quite violent and uh, intense theme. So yeah, what made you make an allowance for this game? It had, a, it had an intense theme, but it wasn't really. It was it was more comic book intensity. Yeah, right. Yeah, I see. Hmm. So let's uh, let's come back to to the story of Atari. So you, you were pretty savvy when it came, I think, to all the competition that were trying to copy copy your work. You know, you had all these hit games coming out, and other companies trying to copy what you were doing with your arcade PCBs and all of that. Is it true that you once mismarked all the chips on a game board so that the competitors ordered the wrong ones when they tried to copy it? I did that, and uh, we actually put couple of them out of business. <laughs> Very nice. And had the temerity to, with one of them, Meadows Games, never forget it, they declared bankruptcy and we went up and we had a champagne party on their front lawn. Asked them if they wanted to join us. They didn't <laughs> spoil sport. <laughs> I mean, that's a, I, I mean, it's a funny story, but it's also quite ruthless. Did you, were you very sort of upset about all these companies trying to, trying to muscle in and take your work then? Absolutely. Yeah. I felt that um, if they were going to mess with me, I could mess with them. And, and this, this will sound arrogant, and it is. But I said, don't mess with me because I'm a better game player than you are. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the game of business. So you, yeah, as I mentioned in the intro, in 1976, you 
come out with the Atari VCS, as it was called in the States, this sort of wood-panelled, beautiful console that goes on to sell an extraordinary number of copies. Why do you why do you think this console in particular was such a success um, compared to its competitors, at least in those early early years? It was the first, and it was cheap comparatively. That is the the uh, cartridges were nineteen bucks, and a lot of times on discount you get them for nine, you know. And so it was a it was a thing where people who loved games got on the bandwagon. You know, and and as as you got more games, we found there was a very interesting thing. We found that if you advertised the game platform, it did okay to boost sales a little bit. But if you advertised the games, you know, the implicit nature was if you wanted to play this game, of course you had to have the console. Yeah. But the game was the thing that triggered the the thing. And sometimes if we did the right game, all of a sudden the shelves would clear in the day of consoles. Do you remember what those titles were that proved to be system sellers for you? I hate to say this because it wasn't an Atari game, but Space Invaders. Right. <laughs> right. And I guess that's related a bit to, as you were saying earlier, you know, the success of. Um, uh, you know, games like Breakout in Japan then sort of inspires the design, the Japanese designers to start making their own games and Space Evaders comes out of that and then comes back full circle and starts selling your system for you. Exactly. Yeah, incredible. So the, the story that's often told is that you, around this time, had a falling out with, uh, with Ted and you buy out his share of the company. Um, is that how you remember it? The, um, it was actually significantly before that and it wasn't as much of a falling out because i really love ted he's a great guy but he was ted was a good engineer but he was not a good executive vice president in fact he was a god-awfully bad <laughs> executive vice president and because of his position he could not think of himself as an engineer and everywhere that i put him he would just mess it up and so I had to do the party of the ways. And it was actually hard for him because hey. we owned a sailboat together. And, you know, there was a, it was, it was a, it was a full on marriage in a lot of ways. Yeah. He, he sort of leaves the games industry and ne never really returned after that. Was it, was it very difficult, that conversation when it happened? And did you ever regain contact later in life? Yes. Yeah. We, um, we, we continue to be sailboat partners together. Oh, you did. And uh, he he made out like a bandit. I mean, you know, he, you know, he not quite as good as he would have if he'd have stayed on. And when we sold to Warner, but he he left with a with assets well several million dollars. Mm, he did okay, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, at what point do you start thinking that you might want to, to get out and try some other ventures? What time? Yeah, I guess I'm asking, when did you think, you know, I might be done with video games and all of this? Never. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the sale came about because we just needed oh, very deep pockets to get the VCS launched. You know, it was, uh, we really, I really didn't have an opportunity. 
And I didn't think that I would ever leave Atari. As a result, I signed a seven-year non-compete, not realizing that when it wasn't my baby anymore, it, Warner was going to continually piss me off. And so I was able to stay as chairman for basically about two, two and a half years. And then I had to get out of there. And uh, by that time, Chuck E. Cheese was doing well. And so it was easy for me to put my effort into Chucky and not into mm -hmm. Atari. So is that because you had just fundamentally disagreed with the decisions that they were making for Atari? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like what kind of thing? Well, I felt that they had to do a VCS2 immediately, that um, by the time we launched the VCS, the cost of memory had dropped by a tours of magnitude. And so... The 2600 had only had 128 bytes of RAM. I mean, that's nothing. Yeah. We could have, for the same cost, put in, you know, 5K of, of memory or even more. That would have just unburdened the microprocessor so much that it given us pixel size, you know, pixel size pixels, not quarter inch blocks <laughs> that the 2600 was limited to. I mean, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But they were like, no, we don't want to do that. Or was that because they were making so much money with the VCS? Yeah. And they, they and they didn't want, you know, they kept saying, well, would, would they do, would it, would it take the same cartridges? And I said, well, no, this would be a whole new system. We may even use a 16-bit microprocessor where the 2600 is an 8-bit, you know, stuff like that. Which, which then, of course, goes on to very much be the model that Nintendo and Sega and all the other console makers do in the decades that follow, isn't it? So. Yeah. Well, Warner populated the Atari with with record executives. They thought they were in the record business. They didn't know they were in the record player business, too. Interesting. Okay, now let's come to your fourth game then. So this is from 1981. Tempest. Tempest was a, um, came out of, I think it was actually the first game that used color on the vector graphic monitor. Because of that, it was a technological sort of force. But more than that, it was just a weird game that was fun. And you'd ask people after they played it, they said, what was that world like? They said, I don't know, but it was a strange one. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you just describe the game for anyone who's not played Tempest? It's a, it's a sort of space shooting game, but it's got a very unique look and feel, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it basically had these almost a rectangular spider web where creepy crawlers would climb across it and you had to shoot them with a trackball messenger that would shoot along the lines but could also be killed by these creepy crawlers coming at you from all directions. <laughs> I know it sounds a little bizarre, but... Uh, that's the way it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a marvelous game. And it has had some wonderful sequels as well over the years, hasn't it? The Tempest as well. It really was. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's 
quite interesting. There's still a very vibrant uh, community who love the Atari VCS and the games on it and are always sort of searching out for unknown projects and lost prototypes and things like that. Uh, Entire forums and websites dedicated to these treasure hunters. I wonder, you know, for you personally, are there any lesser known or forgotten projects or collaborations from from that time that you think uh, should have deserved more attention or success? Atari Tell. I wanted to create the first picture phone. And so we had very, very high-speed modems. And if I hadn't had to sell Atari, Atari might have owned the internet. (laughs) Well, that's a big statement. Yep. But we wanted to create the network effect for game playing. And so the theory was local telephone call in, in the U.S., if you make a local telephone call, it's free. I mean, it's, it's just part of the plan. Then in each area code, you would have a closet that you could dial in, and then you'd link the closets to other area codes with a T1 line. Okay. And so the IP stack, the protocol that <laughs> things talk, was identical to the internet. You know? And uh, How far did it get then? The, the project. Prototype. One or didn't want to do it. But uh, I, I think that if we had the network, that there would have been by, uh, pressure to make the network faster. And then the email would have happened. You know, in fact, it would have almost happened anyway. Uh-huh. And then as the bandwidth got a little higher, there had been the equivalent of a browser, maybe. Who knows? And websites, the whole nine yards. But yeah. I can see that this was 1977. Hey. And remember, the internet really didn't get cracking until 91, even, at, even on the university level. So I think there was plenty of time for it to evolve become the dominant platform hmm. interesting i mean had you know there's a few of these things like uh, atari tell and then uh, the idea of doing sequentially more powerful consoles when you see all of this happening in the 1990s you know did you feel vindicated or did you feel frustrated that you hadn't been a part of it or that you were slightly too early with your vision a little bit of both yeah you know it's one of those things that i I'm kind of sanguine about my role in things. I, I, it felt like selling an entire Atari gave me sort of a pull your head out of the foxhole moment. I kind of got my life on track, my personal life, because you can get really tied into your company as you, you or your company, what have you. Uh. And, uh, and you kind of let your personal life slide. But I got married. I, I got a nice house, lived large, took some vacations. All, all good. All good. I can't say that that would have happened if I hadn't. I'd, I'd stayed on the, on the treadmill. Yeah. You, you, one other aspect of your life around this time, I suppose, is that you spent a lot of time in courtrooms <laughs> due to lawsuits that were... I think mainly being brought by Magnavox, you know, against all kinds of people, including Atari, but lots of other companies. And Magnavox were claiming, you know, they owned these two patents that they claimed gave them the right to charge a license fee to anyone who wanted to make home computer games. And, you know, they took money, you know, from many famous companies, including Nintendo and, and others. 
Well, what's your memory of that time? Was that was that a stressful thing to be a part of, you know, having to give evidence and all of this sort of thing? Or, you know, how did you feel about it? I felt I could beat them. But I also knew that we were the OG, the the original game, and that I was critical to them. And so I settled it for an outrageously small amount. It was like 50000 a year for five years. With the proviso... So this is money you would pay to Magnavox in order to create the Atari VCS. Yeah. Right. right. But I wouldn't, they had, then they took on an affirmative obligation to sue everybody else. And I felt that, you know, if I get a sweetheart deal and everybody else pays through the nose, if you weaken your enemy, you, you can, you know, it's the same as strengthening yourself. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, you you know, talking about this and also the champagne on the lot of the company that you took down with that uh, that ingenious scheme, you know, that I suppose business for you seems like was also, there was a lot of game playing involved in that for you as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think business is the ultimate game. No, it's not the ultimate game. The ultimate game is war. Not that it's a good game, but, but there, in war, you're, you're throwing you know, societies and industrial base and populations against one another. So there's really, they talk about rules of engagement. There really aren't that many. There's a lot of rules of engagement in business, but it's still pretty damn, it's it's multidimensional on so many levels, and uh, it's a much more complex game than anything that I've decided. <laughs> Well, we're going to come to your fifth game uh, in a minute. But just before we do, I wanted to mention the book that you've recently published, co-written with Dr. Leah Hain, is titled Shaping the Future of Education. And the blurb claims it will help accomplish nothing less than a worldwide transformation of the educational system. So it seems like, you know, like war and like business, you're you're taking on education as well as the ultimate game. Yeah, how how do you do you see games being used to to transform education around the world in this way that you're describing? Games are very good at engagement. And so people, kids who are bored, you know, they don't learn very, very well. And also there's actually a metric that, that I have that says you remember 5% of what you see, 10% of what you hear, 90% of what you do. In your games, say that you are doing and responding and acting. And so it makes it much, much stickier and more fun. And quite candidly, school was the most interesting thing happening when I grew up. The alternative was watching the river flow in the corn grow. You know, that isn't our kids today. You know, it's 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 production values, million dollar a minute production values against a, a teacher with a piece of chalk. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> and so... So right now, I think that we have to do massive change and really focus on kids at their speed, at their time, individualized. No batch processing. Not all kids who are eight are learning at the same level. You know, we, we have to atomize or, or granularize education, and then we're going to fix it. <laughs> I've got a whole manifesto, and, and this, this is a book. I want all your listeners to... Shaping the future of education, yeah. So 
and it'll be out in the UK soon. It's out in the States and a bestseller at the moment. So yes, I'm sure people will, will be very interested to see all about what you have to say there. Well, it's, it's also a bit of a manifesto. So right. I'd recruit you to our holy cause. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Right, now then let's come to your fifth and your final game. This is also from 1981, a game involving lots of insects. Tell us about this one. Atari, the leader in coin-operated video games, presents Centipede, an exciting new game with high-intensity action and terrific player appeal. Skill and strategy are combined as players use a trackball and a new rapid-fire button to shoot a combination of four different types of targets on a continuously changing playfield. Initially, the game requires a player to shoot away segments of a centipede as it travels down through a mushroom field. Additional points are made by shooting the mushrooms, which also gains the player more maneuverability for his gun. Next, a spider appears, and this target increases in point value the closer it gets to the player's gun. Be careful, and don't wait too long. The centipede was really a, a funny game that is hard to des- describe. It has a lot of features, and it was actually partially designed by a, a woman, Donna Bailey, uh, who's now a professor in uh, Arkansas University, but she was a very, very interesting rose amongst all the thorns in the engineering department. <laughs> and uh, and it was a game that uh, somehow just hit the, the resonant point. It was massively successful. You know, it was uh, surprisingly so. You know, when I first saw the game, I thought, yeah, this is an interesting game, but I didn't think it was going to be a massive hit. Uh, and it was. So it's kind of you, there's a centipede that snakes its way down the screen and you're trying to shoot it before, shoot shoot out the segments of the centipede, aren't you, before it hits you. And there are also spiders and things like that that run at you. Um, What do you, what do you think, yeah, what's the reason that this game um, became so, or really, you know, connected with people? I think that it had multiple dimensions, like things would drop down and leave little mushrooms. You know, you could blow out the mushrooms, and the more mushrooms you got rid of, it made it easier to kill the centipede. <laughs> and if you shot the segments wrong, all of a sudden you'd have two smaller centipedes instead of one, which was sometimes a benefit and sometimes a falling. <laughs> and I think I think a good game sometimes has these multiple dimensions. When you're playing a game, you're trying to learn things. And when there are multiple threads, it messes with your brain in trying to learn what the best strategy was. Right. And I think that's, that's good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that's where it comes down to the, your slogan, doesn't it? Uh, uh, any good game should be easy to learn and hard to master, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I just, my first ever computer was an, an Atari XE and... Uh, and I had two little cassettes with all of the games that you've picked on them. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it's quite wonderful that we've had a chance to discuss them all. Let me go through your console then, Nolan. So we've got Breakout, Asteroids, Missile Command, Tempest and Centipede. A very fine Atari console there. <laughs> How are you feeling about it? 
Wonderful. We need a we need a name for this console to market it to the world. <laughs> um, what would you What would you like to call your console? Hey, have you got any ideas that we could uh, we could market it with a with a brand name? I've always liked the Zip. Zip. Zip twenty two. <laughs> Why the twenty two? I don't know. That's I shouldn't tell people, but I always like twenty two in my passwords and things. <laughs> Just, <laughs> you definitely shouldn't say that. Probably <laughs> shouldn't say what. But I played basketball in high school. Mm. Jersey was always twenty-two. Oh, it was wonderful. Uh, no, and this has been such a tremendous pleasure. Just before I let you go, I've got one last question for you. Um, you know, we've been reflecting on your your life and your successes here. I wondered, do you have any any regrets from this time that we're talking about? And I think that if you could live those years again, you might do differently. Almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I think that um, I think that I would stick my original plan to never invest more than a half a million of my own money into any company. Because when I violated that with the robots company, that's when the wheels kind of came off. Uh, right. Good advice there for any any young entrepreneur, perhaps. I don't don't get don't fall in love with your own ideas. Yeah, yeah. And is it true as well that uh, Steve Jobson was offered you a chance to to own a significant portion of Apple in those early, early years? Perhaps you, if you could do it all again, you might take them up on that offer. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've thought about that. I think I would. The right way to do it would be to still have them get Mike Markle involved as the primary investor. But if I were just a secondary investor, say, hey, I'm I'm not going to come in for the whole amount that you want. I'll come in for half mm-hmm. and introduce Mike Markle. Then I got, we'd gotten the benefit of Markle, and I'd still have, you know, a sixth of Apple, which is plenty. Oh, sure, yeah, which is probably more money than the U.S. government has these days. <laughs> I imagine exactly. How much? Uh, how much did they want from you, by the way? Fifty thousand for a quarter for a third of the company. Yikes! <laughs> it's a pretty good deal, no, no. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, yeah, thank you for agreeing to do this. I know you don't do many interviews, and it's hugely appreciated. And uh, everyone listening to this will will very much have enjoyed listening to your memories, and uh, and also would want, I'm sure, to express their gratitude to you for everything that you've given the world. Well, you ain't saying nothing yet. We're going to fix education. That's the, that's the spirit, Nolan. <laughs> there we have it. Nolan Bushnell, co-founder of Atari and a crucial figure in the early days of the American video game industry uh, in particular, but of course, the, the general video game industry because Atari's work was instrumental in in helping to bring console gaming to, to Europe and to Japan in particular. That was a really enjoyable chat. There are, however, a few things that I need to go over, things that uh, Nolan said. Nolan is, of course, as you heard from that, a, a bit of a raconteur, a good storyteller. He also has a reputation for... Um, 
playing perhaps a little loose with some of the facts. And so there are just a few things that I'd like to clear up or clarify. Um, I'm sure if we have any listeners who are ardent historians of the early American video game industry, that uh, perhaps they'll be a little frustrated that I didn't press Nolan on on some of these points. But, you know, I just it wasn't quite the, the right forum for that. You know, this podcast is more celebratory uh, in its journalistic tone uh, rather than... <laughs> You know, I wasn't wasn't really looking to press him hard on some of these historical facts. Uh, it was more to get a sense of, uh, you know, his memories of that era and how he feels about it now. Uh, but there were a few things that he said that I think it's worth digging into a little bit. I, you'll remember that I asked Nolan about the legal cases he was involved in. And he talked about how Atari paid a license to, to Magnavox. Uh, this was the the creators of the Magnavox Odyssey for their patents involved in that technology, and he sort of dismissed it in our chat as a very very tiny amount. This is this is very much contested this fact, and you know a lot of the the documentation shows that in fact the payments that were made to Magnavox, or the, at least the terms of that deal, were much much more punitive. Um, so in the book Atari Inc. Business is Fun by Marty Goldberg and Kurt Vendel, they discuss this and how, um, in fact, the royalty payments that were agreed to be paid from Atari to Magnum Fox totaled around $1.5 million over the course of several years. And the agreement also included the stipulation that any technology Atari came up with between June 1st, 1976 and June 1st, 1977 would be accessible to Magnavox for their own use. Those dates are important because it's after the latter of those dates, 1977, that Atari moves into uh, the design and production of its Atari VCS. Uh, Presumably, I guess, (laughs) so that Magnavox didn't benefit from that tech. When I asked him about uh, why the Atari VCS was so successful by comparison to its uh, its competitors, Nolan said, well, of course, it was the first. The Atari VCS was very much not the first video game console. That was, of course, the Magnavox Odyssey. There was also, it was not all, even the first video game console to use cartridges. That uh, was also done by the Fairchild Channel F in 1976, a little bit earlier. Of course, none of this is to say the the Atari VCS or Atari Two Six Hundred was not, you know, the the most impactful and important of all those systems. Uh, I'm just uh, I'm just drawing attention to the fact that it wasn't the first. When I asked uh, Nolan about uh, hit the co-founder of Atari, Ted Dabney, I think Nolan pretty much played down perhaps their. Uh, their, their complications that led to Ted being ousted from Atari. You know, that's, of course, well within his rights to do that. That's his story. Uh, but he did refer to Ted in the present tense and said that he's a, you know, he's a big fan of him and gets along. Um, Ted, in fact, died in uh, on May the 26th, 2018, so a few years ago. I didn't, uh, I didn't mention that to Nolan because I wasn't 100% sure if he actually knew that or not. And it didn't seem like quite the right forum to break that news to him if he didn't know but anyway there's that as well right last thing so you'll recall that uh, I mentioned a, an anecdote when Nolan was talking about Missile Command this is the the arcade game in which you have to shoot down ICBMs as they uh, attack the Californian coastal cities 
this game was i mentioned an anecdote whereby the designer had nightmares about what he'd created and um nolan refers to uh that designer's ed rockwell i think on the tape in fact it was dave furer that's t-h-e-u-r-e-r he was the designer and computer programmer of missile command in 1980 and he also he also did the same for tempest so obviously nola's a big fan of his work <laughs> but i think it's important to name check him as well anyhow all of that aside i hope that you very much enjoyed my uh, conversation with with nolan bushnell nolan, nolan turned 80 years old this year and he's had certainly a very very colorful life he alluded to this a bit when he was talking about how leaving atari enabled him to take his head out of the foxhole and get a hold on his personal life he certainly had a very turbulent personal life and a a very acrimonious divorce with his first wife who when she read an article this was post their divorce where in which he was uh, photographed in a hot tub with loads of pretty californian women and he was boasting about his lifestyle at the time she actually reneged on her divorce settlement agreement with him and it cost him a further three hundred thousand dollars i think uh, that uh, that magazine article that he did so yeah a colorful character i think it's fair to say although of course he's calmed down a lot when i was talking to him he was in his shed or his garage and just surrounded by ele- electronics equipment so He's clearly maintained that lifelong uh, passion for electronics that he had as a young boy when he was installing that radio mast on his parents' roof. And yeah, just what a wonderful guest to close out the year with. Um, Nolan also gave us lots of leads for interesting people that uh, it would be good to talk to as the uh, as the programme grows on into its second year. So I'm going to be uh, approaching some of those individuals as well. All right, we have now reached the final round of the My Perfect Console of the Year knockout competition. I can let you know if you haven't been online and checked yet that the final is between Phil Fish with the Fez 2 and Heather Ann Campbell with the Only Play. So we've got an Canadian versus an American in the final. Their games, just uh, just as a reminder, so Phil Fisher's Fez 2 features Ridge Racer Type 4, Res, Dishonored, Hitman, World of Assassination, and The Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild. While Heather Ann Campbell's Machine, the only play, features Tetris, Street Fighter 3, The Last of Us, Fortnite, and Disco Elysium. Uh, yeah, I've got no idea who's going to win that. That's <laughs> Both of those consoles are fantastic. Um, But yeah, if you would like to place your vote, then you need to be a Patreon supporter to do so. The early rounds of this tournament were open to everyone, but the quarterfinals, semifinals and finals are just for supporters of the show. Head along to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole. You can find out details on how to vote. You can sign up to become a supporter. You get loads of bonuses as well. You get extra episodes. You get sneak previews of who the guests are coming up. You get to be part of the community. And uh, hopefully we'll be doing some new add-ons as well in year two of the podcast. But anyway, if you'd like to vote, then come along, sign up, uh, even if it's just for a month to try it out, and you can vote in the final. I'll be announcing that shortly. And uh, and then after then, we've got a couple of bonus best of episodes, and then there's going to be a short break before we start year two 
of my perfect console so recording some episodes for that at the end of this year and into the new year we've already got a few lined up as well uh held over from 2023 recorded this year so looking forward to sharing those with you and uh yeah heading into the next year of this lovely adventure you can follow the podcast on twitter at my perfect console with the o's removed from console also on instagram uh, at my perfect console uh but yeah probably the best place to find details is on patreon.com forward slash my perfect console uh you can also write to me at my perfect console at gmail.com if you've got any thoughts or suggestions for guests in year two got a very long list thank you to all of you who have done that uh and yeah if you just like to you know make some contact if you interested in sponsoring an episode or anything like that then yeah just drop us a line and we can chat about that okay well i'll be back i'm not sure what day it's going to drop but the announcement of the winner of the console of the year will be coming up shortly and uh, yeah, then we've got a few other bits and pieces, some lovely treats at the end of the year for you as well. So thank you for listening today. Thank you for sticking this far into the podcast if you have done. And uh, I really hope you enjoyed that chat with Nolan Bushnell. What a legend, eh? I'll be back again then in a few days with, not with a new console, but with the very best console of the year, according to you, the listeners. Until then, bye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.